Welcome to Short Story Discussions, the podcast by Short Story Book Club for people who love short stories. Get the best short stories delivered to your door each month when you subscribe at shortstorybookclub.com. And now, here's our show. All right. I want to thank everyone for joining us for another uh, wonderful author chat discussion uh, uh, with the Short Story Book Club discussions. Today, we are joined by Andy Platner, who is the author of the short story collection called Dixie Luck. Now, I um, met Andy, well, maybe met really isn't the word, but I, I came upon uh, Andy during uh, the Georgia Book Festival, and I found his book there, and I was intrigued just by the subject matter. Um, it's the first time I'd, I'd ever um, heard of Andy. I looked through the book and I said, yes, this is something that I would definitely be interested in. And after reading through the stories, I absolutely said, this is, this is definitely some good work here. And then I um, asked Andy if he'd like to be on the show. And he said, yes. <laughs> so I want to thank you. Andy, for being on the on the uh, author chat today. Well, thank you for having me. So, um, let's kick things off first with you just introducing yourself. So I gave you a little introduction, but I, if you could tell people a little bit more about um, uh, you, your writing, and okay, and uh, also the the um, I guess your the professional aspect of yourself outside of outside of your writing because I know that you are also affiliated with the university so if you could just talk with us about that okay sure I'd be happy to uh, I'm from Kentucky I was born in Lexington Kentucky and my father ran horse racing tracks so when we were children when my brother my two sisters and my mother uh, we all lived basically at the racetrack and we would have a house that would be on the grounds and my father ran tracks in Kentucky and Florida, and we would move with the seasons. We would move to Florida in the winter and then move to Kentucky in the warmer months. And so as a boy, I had a lot of exposure to gamblers and gambling. And I have to say, you know, it's been endlessly interesting for me. It stayed with me my whole life. And so that's when you when you look at the stories in the collection, you're going to see there's a lot of stories about gambling. And that's just because of my background and the way I was raised and something I'm very interested in. And I was a terrible uh, college student. I got kicked out of three colleges uh, before I graduated. And it took me quite a while to um, find writing. You know, I felt, I always felt in the way I wanted to do it, but I just never understood how, it, what I could do with it. I just, I thought I would be a some type of horse racing journalist or something like that. And so it took me a while to, to find fiction writing. And, and I went to a really good program at uh, Southern Miss and worked with some great professors there who were really strict and tough. And they, they taught me a lot about writing. And that's kind of how I've, you know, come to this part of my life that I am now is just, uh, you know, working really hard at it. And, um, this is Dixie Luck is my fourth book, and it's my third story collection. So I've, I write a lot of stories, 
And not all of them are about horse racing and betting, but a lot of them are. And currently I live in Atlanta and I teach fiction writing at uh, Emory in Kennesaw State. And I'm um, working on a novel, you know, that kind of thing. And so that's that, that's really who I am. That's that's my background as a writer. Mm-hmm. And and I've lived in the South for a long time, so I write a lot about the South, too. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, so you're writing a book now. Right. Is the... Uh, writing of the novels is that something that's new for you or something that you prefer or is or is your first love like you know the short stories that's that's a very good question uh, 10 years ago i would have said that i wouldn't know how to write a novel because i'd been working on stories for so long and i liked doing it i felt like it, it was the right uh milieu for me um but I, I wrote a novel, uh, let's see, it would be eight years ago now, and it was called uh, Offerings from a Rust Belt Jockey. And I worked on it and worked on it, and it got published in 2014. And I think the, I think it turned out to be a pretty good book. And, and I would say since then, I have really been more dedicated to writing novels. I think I've learned how to pace myself better. Um, I think that my works want to be longer. I don't want to say they want to be more complex, because I think the stories are complex, too. But I just maybe in just one of those uh, spans of my creative life where I just feel like working on longer uh, manuscripts. So that's really what I've been doing the last four or five years. And I finished a, a novel uh, last fall called The Race Caller that I'm sending around now. It's a racetrack novel. And I'm working on something else now that I'm, I'm just, you know, digging it now. I'm just, you know, turning over the dirt now. I don't know what it's about or what they want, wants to do yet. But they are two distinctly different things, writing a story and writing a novel. The demands are, are, are unique for each, and b- both are extremely difficult to do. Uh, but I don't really have a preference. I would just say at the moment, I'm, this is what I'm doing is working on longer manuscripts, and I, and I do enjoy it. It is a lot of work, but I do enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And would you say that uh, short stories have evolved over time? So... So you were you were talking about how um, you were feeling like maybe your your stories, uh, I guess the the thing you know rising up inside of you, right. it was telling you that you had maybe just a little bit more to say, a little you wanted to use a different structure to express that. But right. I, but I but I also know that you're you're also something of of a of a scholar of short stories, and so you know thinking about how you know s- storytelling can sometimes you know evolve and change depending on the types of stories that people tell. Have you have you noticed like a change in in the short stories and maybe how they're told or 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 have shifted in a certain way over the years? Oh, yeah. Uh, we're, we're talking about my work. I would say that's definitely happened. When I was a graduate student and just, just kind of learning how everything worked, I wrote in first person practically all the time. And the narrators were, um, I don't want to say they were bewildered, but they were young. They, were, they really didn't understand the world around them very well. And I would say that probably reflected 
something of my own view, you know, my own experience. And as I've gotten older and I've been doing this for a while now, the, the story, the, the telling of the stories is changing. The, the characters are a little older. Um, I, I don't want to say that they're clued into the world better. I don't know that I would go quite that far, but the things they're interested in are, are changing. The, the, the kind of things that I'm interested in has been changing over the years. And uh, like I mentioned before, you know, my background is really uh, a racetrack background, an edgier background. And now that I've been at the university for a while, uh, my life experiences are changing too. You know, I'm, I've made the acquaintance of a lot of different people who are not gamblers. And I like them equally as I did the gamblers when I was growing up, and they're equally as interesting. And so I think that has changed my the way I look at people and talk to them and the way I see my own characters. And so I think that's an evolution that's pretty natural. And I don't know that I'm a – you know, this is what I would say. I, I hope I'm a better short story writer than I was 20 years ago, but I don't know that. I, <laughs> I just think it's different. And I, I think the denominator as I go forward is, is I'm very, very interested in my work. I really am a very obsessive writer. Once I start to work on something, I, I tell my wife, I said, it's like I go in the hole and I just, my ability to concentrate or pay attention to what people are saying is, you know, diminished some. And she can tell because I get very distracted and I'm not, I'm just not paying attention to everything happening around me. And I think I've always kind of been that way, which I think is the, price or the, the, you know, what you have to do. I think that's part of the deal of being a writer. So I think, I think this, my stories have changed and I've become a more knowledgeable short story writer because I've studied other writers for quite a while now and I see how they solve their problems. And I read people like Lydia Davis and Lucia Berlin and Dagoberto Gilb, who's a guy, I, I love his short stories. His collection is called The Magic of Blood. It came out a while ago, but it's a great collection. And I study, you know, Kafka and Hemingway, and, uh, you know, they have good lessons for me to learn. And so, I, you know, I think when, I'm, when you're younger, I think your knowledge of writing is not as great as it is. Your sense of it is fat, profound. You can feel it profoundly that you want to do it. But your knowledge isn't quite there. And as you get older, you start to learn more and understand more, and, but that doesn't automatically make you better. It still has everything to do with what you're writing about, what you care about. And so I think as, as those things have influenced me over time, that it's changed how I approach maybe a narration. Um, but I think it's healthy. I think, and I think it's, it's headed in the right direction, more or less. Mm. And do you think that there has been a change in the way storytelling has been done just in terms of like culturally in our modern times? Yeah. Oh, I think so. I, the, the, the proliferation of writing programs and workshops, they, they, that's going to have an effect on literature that's being turned out by our writers. There's just, there's just no other way of saying that. And I think there are a lot of great writers out there right now is what I think. And I think that the, the great writers are the ones who seem to be able to create their own atmosphere, their own turf. And that while we, we always study the masters who've come before us, that, um, you know, in the end, writing for writing, you have to do your own thing. You have to figure it out and then 
do what you need to do. I do think that the number of writing programs we have, and I came out of a program, so I'm not dissing them at all, but I think that just logically we can conclude that in some ways that we're getting work that um, reflects that kind of training, that, that similarity in training, that coming through the workshop and trying to write for a, a workshop and, and deal with that kind of criticism. And um, so I don't know that it's gotten, I don't, I don't know that it's gotten, I wouldn't say worse, I wouldn't say that at all, but I think it's definitely shaped what's being published and what's being written. Hmm. And, but like I said, there are a lot of there are a lot of terrific writers out there right now, and so I don't know if we're if, if we're any better than we were a hundred years ago in America with fiction. I don't know that I would be qualified to answer that, but uh, it's exciting too, you know, with all of the with all of the uh, writing programs and the and the competition is very intense, but there are also a tremendous amount of opportunities to publish which is what I tell my students all the time. You know, the competition is pretty intense for everything, but there are a lot of opportunities. You just have to keep doing it yes. and keep working on it. Yes, and that that is just, just for me, I think the most wonderful thing about being a writer today. Um, it just with the, um, I mean, if you if you think narrowly about, writing fiction like you could say okay well the only thing I can write is you know um you know a book and maybe the innovation would be you know maybe you're you're self-publishing or or um or going through a a a traditional publishing route but today there are so many uh, uh different ways that that writers can um get into, um, you know, can get work, I guess, right. basically, um, through the entertainment industry. Right. I mean, there's all kinds of things online. There's, there's, there is not enough um, content for things like our Netflixes and our Hulus and our, our um, MGMs of the world these days. I mean, they just, I mean, there's good, good writers i mean there's p- plenty of opportunities for them and then right. then of course you know you've got your traditional routes um you know with your with your uh book publications and such but uh i think this is this might be you know the golden age for anyone who wants to be a writer the the best time ever yeah i i and when I think of when I think of what's going on, I, I generally look at that that issue of opportunities, and I feel like it's a blessing of our time. I think there's some things that are not as good, but um, but I, when I think about and I tell the students as we talk about this all the time, that you have to get used to being rejected, and you have to get, and handle it, and understand that it doesn't mean anything basically, and that if you want the door to open, you can. You can get it open. You just have to be persistent. Somebody out there, because there's so many editors and so many publishers now, um, somebody will pay attention. If you've written something good, someone will notice it. Right. And and that's if you think of what if we had, if we lived in a world that was opposite of that, how frustrating and difficult that would be. Then I think that that you know 
would be a very, uh, what would you say, would uh, not mute what was going on now, but I think it would discourage a lot of writers if the, if the paths to publishing were so very narrow that um, it was impossible to do, or it was so extremely difficult to do that I think, and maybe some good writers would just step back and not want to participate in it because it was so difficult. Because Donna, my, my experience tells me that, you know, no matter what stage you're in of your writing, if you're just coming up or if you've experience some luck you have to have some success you have to be able to you know when you when you sit down to do your work you have to be reassured in some way at some point that you can do it mm-hmm. it's not just like you're beating your head against a wall it's like no i've published a couple of stories already i know i can do this yeah. or i've had a good workshop or something and that that positive feedback is out there not gratuitously i think it's you know well earned when you get it but you if you look hard enough, you can find somebody who will pay attention to what you're doing yeah. if you work really hard at it. So, right. And there's an audience for just about everything, like I agree. you're saying. So like um, like short stories, for example. There's there's a, an audience for short stories. There's an audience for um, some of this new uh, fast flash fiction right. that people are, are writing these days. Um yeah, you just have to find find the right people um, for what it is that you're trying to get out into the world. Yeah. So um, you talked a little bit about, um, you know, yourself, you know, as a writer. And you had mentioned something about, uh, like, your, like, the attention that you would give to a subject. You said something about... Uh, uh, you know how you how you like to to focus on lots lots of different things, or like you know you're you might be over here one minute and then over there the next. Right. And when you said that, I was actually a little um, curious about that because it has always been my understanding that many writers are very thoughtful and and they. It always seemed to me that they, you know, would take a subject and like really dive deep into it. Like even if it was just uh, in, a, in observing something, they would look at something in a much deeper way than, you know, like a, uh, a non-writer might say, for example. Because, and I say this because when I, when I read through your writing, I can tell that you are so very observant about the world and the way that you describe, uh, you know, these little tiny, tiny scenes, like there's um, even in uh, the terminal or just terminals, even in terminal, um, you know, you were, t- you were talking about the French Quarter and I can even just tell in the details that you wrote about like, you know, how, where things were situated in the city and how how people moved down the street, how they would take various articles of clothing or or what have you. Like that level of detail, it seemed to me that there has to have been some some concentration, some deep right. thought concentration there. Right. Right. Let me let me uh clarify then something that when I was talking before about being distracted or being um what would you say obsessive or what, what I was talking before is that what I meant to say, or I'm clarifying this is that when I'm working on something, a story or a novel, uh, 
that I'm, I'm consumed by that. And therefore, when I'm out in the world with other people, I'm not really paying attention to what they're saying or uh, I have a cursory. I'm trying not, I try not to be rude, but, but my wife is the one who will notice. She notices when I'm some, working on something deeply because she'll say to me, you're not listening to me at all. And it's because I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm still in my work, as it were. So that, that's that's what I mean by that. And my my, uh, you know, focus on detail is is everything. In storytelling, if you can't, I mean, it is detail. Storytelling is details. And you, you know, you mentioned the the terminal piece. And I'll, I'll tell you what I, I did with that is. Uh, a little little backstory here. I live in Atlanta, and infamously, we had the one inch of snow. It was in 2014, and it shut the city down for a whole week. <laughs> and so I was off school for the whole week. So I'd been thinking about this story, and it happens in New Orleans. So I had a week off just to sit and work on it, so I did. And I was writing New Orleans all from my memory. I've been to New Orleans a few times. I got married in New Orleans. It's you know one of my favorite cities, but I don't. You know, it's memory. I was writing straight from my memory. And so after I wrote the story, I had a chance to go over there a couple of months later. And and I basically walked the story through with a notebook of everywhere I had my guy in the story. Um, Leo, uh, Leo Unitas, everywhere he was in the story, I went there and just made notes about the way the light fell on the street or the, you know, the Mardi Gras beats hanging in the live oaks or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And because I figured that, you know, in the end, that piece only works if the details are right and true to the story. And also, uh, Donna, and you probably could have deduced this without me saying it, that if you write about a place like New Orleans or Atlanta or New York or whatever, and you have somebody who knows the city, and then you have a detail that's incorrect, like you have a restaurant on a wrong corner or you say you can see the river from a certain street and the river, you can't, then that's, they will, that will cause a hitch in their reading. That will be, they'll think, well, you know, that restaurant's not on Chupatulas. It's on, you know, Royal street. And does this guy know what he's doing? Does this guy know the city at all? And you've, you've, you know, you've caused a, a distraction to your reader. You've, you've collapsed the fictional dream that you have tried to create. Mm-hmm. So of course, you know, those things are really very important in that way too. Mm-hmm. And, but I appreciate what you're saying because it's, it, you know, that is, a, that is very important to terminal the, all those details yes. of the, the, the city and what, what Leo notices because he's not from there. He's from Birmingham. And so anyway, that's, but it, it is a very important part of terminal, that's for sure. Yeah, and it's and it was just so vivid, uh, and and I may harp on that um, a little more, perhaps than I should, only because you know, like you were saying, one of the key elements of storytelling is detail, but it's really. Uh, remarkable how many, how few people actually remember that. And that goes for any kind of writing, whether it's right. fiction or nonfiction. Um, you know, people put stories together every day and they wonder why they can't connect with people. Um, but, you know, it's like these basic, the basic elements, like you were talking about, like 
just the the, sim- the smaller details that really kind of um, help shape an image are, are always really important that a lot of a lot of new writers or inexperienced writers will forget. So another thing that you had actually mentioned was the fact that a lot of your characters, not characters, but but you said that you wrote um, maybe, well, maybe you did say characters, that you're talking about like how a lot of them were a little older uh-huh. because you, you know, you yourself are in a different, um, in a different part of your own life. And I was thinking to myself as I was reading through uh, Dixie Luck that I had noticed that in particular. And I was wondering, you know, is that whether that was actually intentional? And it seems that it wasn't necessarily explicit, but maybe just something, you know, based on your experience, like writing from the perspective of an older person. Yeah. And, and Donna, are you, are you, is the idea here that, that as you read the collection, the characters are getting older as the stories go on? No. I was thinking more just the fact that I was um, uh, impressed by how you gave voice to older people. Oh. So, I mean, it, it's, it might be what you said is actually true, but I didn't notice that part. But what I was thinking of was how when you read a lot of stories that a lot of the characters are usually very young middle-aged you don't really hear about the older characters right and like what their thoughts and how they're carrying carrying on their lives right right yeah and i i and i hope i do that with care and with detail and but you there's always this deal you have to when you're when you're when you're writing your fiction when it, it's implicit that it's part of you if you're writing a character like Leo from Terminal or any of the other characters in the stories, then that part of that person is you. But the separation you always want to have is, is that the character is still unto himself or herself as a human being. And that, so in other words, if it's something that I worry about in my own life, I don't know that my character would worry about that. You know, and so you have to, even though as you, I think it's natural as you, writer you get older and your characters are kind of aging along with you and though they are part of you but they're not you mm-hmm. and that you you know no matter what age they are what age you are you still have to have that separation between them where let's let's talk about uh, terminal for just a second but leo is a guy who is a has a really substantial gambling problem in the story and though I gamble, I will freely admit that. I, I don't think that Leo and I are necessarily together on that, you know, that, that compulsive gambling that he, he does. Um, but it also, by, by focusing on that for his character, I think it illuminates something about his own life, the way he looks at his own life. It is a little different than the way I look at my own. And even though that uh, I would say that we're, we're closer in age, you know, uh, he's, he's a little younger than I am. Um, but I, it still isn't me, though. It's he's his own guy. He's his own. He has his own complexities and dimensions. And I, and I think if, if when I think of the stories that I've written that are 
okay. I think of that, like the, those characters are still separate from me, even if they are a little older than characters from a book I'd written a few years ago. Uh, that's fine. And I think some of the things that I understand and I see in my own life obviously permeates my fiction, the things I'm coming up with. But it's still a good thing to make sure that they're separate from me, too. Because mm-hmm. some of the stuff I worry about is stupid. And it's just, you know, it's just, you know what I mean? You have your own trivial stuff in your own life that just doesn't seem to equal anything. And so I don't know that I want to load that onto a character. Mm. Um, so anyway. Okay. Well, I will say that I don't necessarily think that the trivial stuff is necessarily bad to right. to include in a story. I mean, I, I sort of, uh, I mean, you know, to the right degree, I think sometimes that can can add to the depth of a character, get a little get a little um, different perspective. Yeah. I know. Uh, but. You know, following along with the lines of, you know, the the older uh, characters, this is actually, Terminal was actually the first uh, short story I've read, I think maybe even ever, um, that talked about the idea of retirement. So, you know, we have the woman who is a jockey and she's at this stage of her life where, you know, she probably has, you know, a couple couple more years or even a couple of races left in her. But some of the dialogue that she, the internal dialogue that she had with herself, I think, or maybe it was Leo projecting dialogue on her, um, just in terms of, you know, like she's, she's at this point where she might be about uh, to give up the races, um, was that, I mean, like, is that something that, that you have thought about yourself, like in terms of, uh, you know, the, the struggle with retirement, like when you know that you've got so much more to give to an occupation, but, you know, maybe for whatever reason, you know, some other force might be pulling you in a different direction. Currently, I would say no to that. But I, in in Karen's case, that she, what what as you, you know this because you've read this the story, but Karen is afraid she can't handle certain aspects of her work anymore. She's not afraid of getting hurt, but she's getting afraid that um, the corrupt side of racing is going to be too much for her, and that she can't. And she has to deal with it. That's the way the story works. If you don't deal with it, they're going to they're going to run you out of business. And she's concerned about this. She used to be when she was younger and coming up as a jock. She understood all of that, and she played along with it because I think the the way the arc of the story is working, Donna, is that she felt like she would have a much better career than she's had. Mm-hmm. And now, because her career feels so small to her, um, she wonders if the sacrifices that she makes are really worth it anymore. And and I think that's what's going on with her character. She's trying to, is in the, is the story works, she's trying to steal herself and tell herself it's okay, she can keep going. And this is why she she calls, one of the reasons she calls Leo is that she wants to salvage something of her past because their marriage failed very badly. And, but that she, she understands this is a chance for her to bring him back into her life and he can help her, but also maybe remind her that there was good, 
there was something good about them being together at some point. They did know how to work together and they do understand each other very well. So the retirement talk that is in the uh, story for her is very scary. And I think that he knows she's not going to do it. I think he knows her that well. And that's one of the reasons that she wants him back over there is, is because he knows her so well and that he knows that being a jockey means everything to her. It allowed her to leave home, allowed her to have her own life, to be her own person. Uh, and so I think in the way the story is working, that thing is pretty scary for her. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and I don't know about, about, if you're asking me about if something, that's something I ponder uh, personally, the answer would be just absolutely not. I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know what else I can do anymore besides what I do now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I can. Uh, I, I think, or at least in in my uh, in my work, I I work in an office. Um, I see a lot of um, a lot of retirement talk, uh-huh. and uh, the the character. It just sort of like I, I just sort of um, like really latched on to that idea. When she right. was talking about that, um, sometimes right. I see people leaving and they're so young right. and they've got so much uh, left to offer. Um, and sometimes, sometimes people stay too long, right? right? And then other times people leave too early, but they leave because they think that's what they're supposed to do. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I was just... Just a little intrigued by that, that sure. part part of the story there, and I and I am glad that you included that because, like I said, there, at least for me, I have not read a lot of stories that talk about um, the experiences of older uh, older adults. Okay, sure. so. You also mentioned that Leo uh, has a gambling problem. So you use the word problem. I would not have described it as a problem. Um, are you, when, you, when you say that it is a problem, is this referring to the fact that he thinks about gambling so often or the fact or, or was it the scene where he was uh, he was at the track and and lost uh, all of his uh, all of his bets at the end? Or no, I don't. I don't think that he sees himself as a problem gambler. I think that he gambling is identity for him, and it's very strong with him. And he understands it. He understands the world as a gambler. Uh, it presents opportunity. It presents chance for him. I. When I say that he's a problem gambler, I'm, I, what I mean specifically is, is that someone from the outside looking at him would say, that guy's got a gambling problem because it basically is his whole being. It's where he works. He works at an off-track betting parlor. Um, and the story tells us, the, the uh, exposition of the story tells us that Karen would not stay with him because of his gambling, that he, he kept trying to leverage her work as a way to make money gambling. And she was like, you're, you're, you're going to hurt me professionally. If people think I'm married to a gambler, they're not going to put me on their horses. They're not going to tell me anything. And 
but he's, he's never really escaped the life, but I don't, I certainly don't view him as a person who is um, crippled by it or uh, I wouldn't call it a disease. I just, in his case, it's an identity. Mm-hmm. It, it gives him, it tells him who he is, the way he looks at the world. And he, he's, he's alert to what he gambles on as he's grown older. He's not as reckless as he once was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. That's, yeah. that's the impression that I got. He didn't, he seemed to be very high functioning and it wasn't as if everything that he did uh, brought him back to the racetrack. He was able to hold down a job and right. have a relationship, all, all that kind of things. So, Well, actually, just to elaborate just a little bit more on his character, that he understands that if gambling gets to be too big of a thing with him now, that he won't be able to do it anymore. It'll cost him his job. He'll, it, it, in other words, if he, if he lets it overtake him as it did once, that he will basically lose everything because he likes his job. He likes where he works, and he honestly he likes his life. His life is, has its empty dimensions to it. Mm-hmm. But if he doesn't have what he has, he really doesn't have anything. And he's alert to that. And, and I don't know if the story explicitly says that, but I think that's a very important part of his character. Mm-hmm. And when people read the story, what are the what is the big takeaway that you would want them to get from Terminal? Well, I, I wouldn't call it necessarily a story of redemption. Um, though I, I remember when I was when I was when I'd finished writing the story that I I felt like it had such an uplifting ending that I almost called it a fable. I was gonna I was gonna, it was gonna be called Terminal Colon a New Orleans Fable because I thought that, that I don't want to give the story away, but it it the up parts of the story uh, uh, surprised me. The the, what happens at the end surprises because I didn't think the story would end the way that it did. But I think the ending for the story is right. What we have now is right. Uh, the takeaway is that um, some people are really, really good together in little particular corners of the world and at little particular times of their lives. They're really, really good together. And that's what's really happening in this piece that a couple whose marriage was doomed early on but they still were able to reclaim something that said that they weren't that bad together because in the, as the story works, there's a lot of harmony between the two of them. So without, you know, doing a spoiler alert, I do, but I do think of when I step back and think of the story, I think that that really is the thing about it. Hmm. And why is it called terminal? Well, as you know, the story opens at the train terminal Oh, on Loyola Avenue, you know that. Okay. And but also, I think the implications are speaking to um, their relationship, that there are things about their time together that was okay, and that they, I don't know, I see they're, they're important people to each other, and that will never change, even though they're, they're on different paths in their own lives. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, a lot to think about. Um, So there's some things that you mentioned here that I had not uh, thought about myself. So I'm going to have to go back and reread this story again uh, to pick up on those those subtle notes uh, that you. Well, you know, something, Donna, I I don't know if this is your experience in talking with writers, but I my. Of what I've seen and read, writers see their work differently than readers do. 
And I, I don't know if this is your perception at all, but it's it's mine where the writer has certain ideas about his or her, you know, fiction and the reader picks up certain things and the writer might even say out loud, I didn't really know that was an important part of the story or whatever. Um, but I think that's fine. You know, I, I, it is fiction. I mean, it is literary fiction. So there's going to be a lot of uh, dimensions to it. And, but if that makes sense, that is, that's something I've seen when writers talk about their pieces and, and the, the, uh, the audience will, somebody in the audience will notice something and the writer will say, well, I really wasn't trying to do that. So, and I don't think that's a bad thing, incidentally. Okay. Well, good. I'm still going to read it again. Because okay. I, <laughs> because I, I like to, I like to, to pick up on those, those, uh, those subtle points. That's what I love so much about short stories, actually. Right. That part where you get to um, see, where you get to read between the lines. Right. Okay. So, is there... Anything that um, that we haven't talked about that you wanted to sh- maybe wanted to share with everyone? Well, I'm, I'm looking at the image here of the cover of the book on the screen, and this is a this is not a writing thing, but I'll tell you a, a quick story about how the cover came to be. That the publisher contacted me at some point and said we don't have any ideas for how to link these stories with a cover, and they said could you help us with that? And I didn't really think of anything. Uh, until I was just looking through on a bookshelf out here in the, our apartment one day, and I saw these binders that had these collections of old matchbooks, and I had bought it at some flea market in Florida, and so I thought, well, it would be maybe it would be cool to have a bunch of matchbooks on the cover reflecting, you know, the number of stories, et cetera, mm-hmm. and southern tied to the south in some way. So these matchbooks on the cover are from a collection that I have. It's, it's not my collection, though. I bought it at a flea market. And I'm, I'm guessing it was from some kind of salesman who collected matchbooks, you know, in the 60s and 70s. That's when they seem to be from. But I think it's, I think the cover turned out pretty well. I think it's pretty cool. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Absolutely. I had, had never even thought about matchbook covers in terms of, like, a collectible yeah. item. But uh, well, it's probably because I don't really use matches a lot. But uh. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think. Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of dates stuff in a way. But I like some of the art on the matchbooks too, though, Donna. The and I, I picked out not pick out all of them. But I picked out some of them because I just thought the art was really cool on some of the books. Yeah, that's fascinating. Thank yeah. you. So your next book, um, or uh, next uh, story to be published you know you might be working with a um a uh, a journal or or something of that nature when should we look out for your next your next work well i I'd, I'd, I'd like to give you a really specific answer there but i can't uh i i have some stuff that i'm showing to editors now and kind of waiting to hear what they have to say but I imagine it would be next year at the earliest, okay. even though I, I have a couple of you know manuscripts that are done and I'm shopping them around. But I, I don't nothing is set. Nothing has been agreed upon. So hopefully not too long, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, well can you uh, 
tell us if it has a gambling theme or <laughs> well yes kind the novel i'm shopping around now there the gambling is in there but it's, it's really more about work and the type of work that the main character is doing and how it um speaks to his way of looking at the world and and i will i, I do feel compelled to add this though i i, I do write frequently about gambling, I also write a lot about work and the types of jobs people have and how it can clarify things for them or can, you know, make things more mysterious than they ought to be or whatever, however you want to say that. And because I think it's work is a very important thing. And it's important to me as I've gotten older, the kind of work I'm doing is important to me. So um, it has, I would say that the book has more about that than gambling, but there's lots of horse racing stuff in it. And, so, but I, I, I worked on it for, you know, five or six years and it blew it up 10 times getting the book that I wound up with. So I worked really hard on it. So anyway, we'll see. Okay. That sounds exciting. I look forward to that. Thank you. Okay. 2020. All right. So I will, uh, I'll, I'll call, I'll call it, let's, we'll call it a wrap. Okay. And I want to thank you so much, Andy, for joining us for this author chat. I really enjoyed talking with you. Likewise. Well, that's it for another great episode of Short Story Discussions, brought to you by Short Story Book Club. Would you like to become a member of the club? Visit us online at shortstorybookclub.com to subscribe. And don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. Your story matters, and we'd love to hear from you. Thank you for being part of today's episode. See you next time.